How did the best machine learning practitioners get involved in the field? What challenges have they faced? What has helped them flourish? Let's ask them. Welcome to Learning from Machine Learning. I'm your host, Seth Levine. Welcome to Learning from Machine Learning. Uh, on this episode, I have the pleasure of having Vincent Warmerdam. Uh, he's currently a machine learning engineer at Explosion, uh, the company behind Spacey and Prodigy. Uh, Vincent is an educator, a blogger, uh, consistent Pi Data speaker. He's created many valuable open source tools. Uh, he's endorsed for awesomeness on LinkedIn over a hundred times and truly uh, an inspiring force in the data science community. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, um, like that comment is making me check. Do I have a hundred endorsements? I didn't know o that. Over, over. Oh, okay, cool. No, yeah, okay, cool. Uh, it's like an inside joke I had with a former colleague, like whoever can get the most. But yeah, I've got more than 99 endorsements for awesomeness on LinkedIn now. Nice. Um, <laughs> okay. Why don't you uh, give us some background uh, on your career journey? How did you get to where you are today? I mean, uh, it is for me, it's a little bit hard to give proper career advice because I want to just recognize I'm a little bit privileged and I got lucky a whole bunch. Because, you know, when I started this whole data science thing, it was, this was the era when random forests were kind of new. Uh, and if you could just use a random forest, you're already way better than all the econometricians with linear models. So, uh, you know, can, can you run fit predict? Bang, you've got a job. Uh, like, I was kind of in that era at the right time. Um, after that, though, you know, I kind of started blogging. I started helping out arranging some meetups. Um, like, the, there's a machine learning meetup in Amsterdam I helped organize. There's the PyData Amsterdam one that I helped organize. And I, have a, I had a pretty popular blog as well, so people started recognizing me for that. Uh, and, you know, at some point, um, that recognition gets you places, you get invited to speak, and then people sort of see you as an authority figure. Um, I, I'm not, I think, like, I'm, 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 I have sensible ideas, I like to think, but uh, I'm, like, uh, I, I, t I try to be, you know, kind of modest about that. Um, but that has been kind of the story of the career, though, because people knew my blog, which would usually include the CTO of a company, and then the CTO would say, hey, I like your blog, can we just have a beer? And then usually that led to the job offer. Um, I have yet to talk to a recruiter. Um, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> um, I've never been hired through the recruitment pipeline uh, so far in my career. It's always been via the CEO or CTO because they were they knew of my work beforehand. Um, and this is like very weird advice. Like this is a very bad story because this is very hard to replicate for others because I just got very lucky when it comes to this. I do think like having a blog and uh, being able to get recognized is very useful, uh, just very hard to replicate. Um, but I also like to think that, you know, some of the side projects that I did for open source uh, definitely helped out. Uh, the calm code thing is something that people know me of these days. Um, I, like I do like to think the whole... Um, there's like a Japanese saying, I think, like plant a thousand flowers and some of them will be a lotus. Uh, I, I do kind of subscribe to that idea. Um, but uh, a lot of it comes down to luck and a bit of privilege as well. I, would just, wanna, I just wanna be honest about that. But uh, being able to be recognizable has proven to be useful to me, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I mean, everyone's you know journey is, is unique. Um, what are the what are the roles that that you've played at at different companies? I, I know you've been a consultant at one point, um, machine. I've been an advocator. You've had some interesting titles, right? I mean, there was a phase at a previous company where they would really let you pick any name you could, and me and a couple of colleagues would think it funny to really <laughs> see how far we could stretch it. Um, so I was a I called myself a Pokemon master because I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> Um, I, it's not, like my favorite title uh, was senior person because at some point I was just one of the old guys at the company, so I just called myself that. Um, but I guess as far as roles goes, I mean, I've been doing lots of training, so at some point you call yourself a trainer. Um, I, I, because you're doing consultancy, you have different roles within different teams, so I was like a lead at some point as well. I was sort of also helping recruit company, like recruit people at companies for like the specific data team, et cetera. Um, sometimes my role would be super temporary. Sometimes it'd be like for two years or something like that. Uh, but usually it's been like, a, I'm, I was a person in a data team trying to get the team to become productive, doing whatever. Um, usually the things I, I like to think I'm pretty good at is keeping things very simple. Um, I can get a lot of mileage from linear models, which um, tends to work quite nicely. Um, and before that, I mean, it was like I also had lots of different jobs in college, and I do like to think that that kind of helped as well. Like, 
um, before, like, I, my background is in operations research, but before that, I actually studied design. Uh, and my evening job, I was a bartender at a comedy theater in the Netherlands, which, um, you know, I do like to think that that might have helped my presentation skills in a way. Uh, just like uh, having studied design for a while also makes me think differently about algorithms um, and how just like operations research. Uh, kind of makes me think about constraints a lot when I'm doing data science things. Like, um, I, I like to think that I have a somewhat diverse background, uh, and it's that somewhat diverse background, I suppose, that uh, makes it easy for me to do the stuff that I'm doing now. Uh, I guess it's the summary. That makes sense. Um, so diving into your academic background, what was it? So it was operations research and some design. That sounds pretty. That sounds pretty unique there. Yeah, well, so uh, I studied this. I I, um, I studied industrial design engineering for a year, and then I found out it wasn't for me, so I had to switch majors. Um, and then the the bachelor's was econometrics and operations research, and the master's was operations research. Uh, I thought that it was the most interesting of the two, but also because that kind of had like a little gateway to computer science. So if I wanted to do the computer science courses, that'd be kind of an easy way for me to get the courses I wanted to take. Um, but then, uh, you know, I, I, I was also rowing when I was in college and did a bit of partying, so I wasn't allowed to start my master's just yet. So also at this one year where I just took whatever course interested me, I did a couple of courses in neuroscience, which was pretty interesting, awesome. social psychology and biology and whatnot. Um, again, like I like to think that the diversification of knowledge has proven to be quite useful, but um, uh, the, the official title for my academic background is operations research. So that's the mathematics behind optimizing systems. Uh, that's kind of the thing that you're taught there. Very cool. What's like the quintessential or a conical problem in operations research that, that people would uh, try to so get like, into? Um, like a very textbook example, I suppose, but like um, in machine learning, you usually try to optimize towards something. Like you want to get the loss as low as possible or the accuracy as high as possible. And you've got algorithms for that. Um, you typically take your data and the label you want to predict and uh, you come up with some sort of loss function. You try to get that as, qu as small as possible. And in operations research, you kind of do a very similar thing. It's just that in operations research, you typically aren't dealing with a machine learning algorithm, but you're dealing with, let's say, hey, we have stocks that we would like to invest in. And um, oh, by the way, that also introduces constraints. Because yes, we want to get the highest return, but of course, we don't want to overshoot the budget. And we also have a risk preference. Um, and those are like defined as hard mathematical constraints. And then if you want to optimize, it's kind of a different ball game because um, if your algorithm ever exceeds the bounds of the constraint, then you're in sort of bad territory. Um, so that I would argue that's like the main thing if you're doing operations research that you're taught. Like constraints really matter and you want to deal with those in mathematically uh, you know, proper ways. Uh, and that's like a different ball game, but that's the, the main thing that they, they're dealing with. Just this constrained optimization is what they do. Very cool. Um, yeah, sounds like you need a very strong math background. Probably some linear algebra uh, in there too. Uh, lots of calculus and linear algebra. Um, although I will say, like, it depends a bit on what you do. Like, when 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 you do the master's degree, of course, you get the theoretical courses and you gotta, you know, do the proofs. But the moment that you start doing your thesis, like, I was, my my, I had a professor who basically said, "I know nothing about machine learning, Vincent, but you seem so eager. Uh, you do machine learning and just teach me how it works, because I've got no idea." Um, and that was also just fine, which is great. Like the professor just let me do, uh, like I, yeah, do what I wanted to do, and I was also able to teach myself that way. Um, but if you really want to do like the the like the proper operations research, and especially if you want to do a PhD, it is super math heavy. That's true. Uh, a little bit too heavy for my comfort, to be honest. I'm a little bit more on the applied side of things, but uh, I still know people who ended up doing a PhD, and they are definitely the the math proof kind of people. Uh, they're they're kind of this um, cookbook of linear algebra kind of a person. <laughs> that right. Yeah, that's definitely in the in the field. Definitely. What what was it that attracted you to machine learning? What initially got you interested in it? Um, I mean, there's always something cool about making predictions, right? So there's, like, I, there's something about that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, I think the longer story, though, I do remember, like, a very close family member of mine got a wrong medical diagnosis. And I do remember thinking, like, oh, man, it was, you know, everything... The, the the wrong diagnosis was they told the they told the person you have a very bad disease and the person didn't um and we found out just in time thank god but like 
um, they might have got done some really weird life decisions, uh, like sell the house immediately and that kind of a thing, um, because of that decision. So that made me think, like, okay, there's definitely consequences to making the wrong decisions. So anything that we can do to make better decisions is an interesting thing. And maybe there's something about this machine learning. The whole idea that uh, you try to learn more from data uh, by using a machine, uh, that sound, uh, there's something plausible about that. That seems very interesting. So that was kind of around the time that I did think, like, hey, yeah, let's see if these algorithms might be able to do something. Uh, and then the career prospects turned out to be amazing. So that was, like, another motivation to sort of go into that realm. Uh, but yeah. the initial spark, I suppose, was uh, a wrong decision got made. That's how I started thinking, uh, hey, maybe there are systems that we can improve here. Very interesting. And we're going to dive into machine learning in a bit. But having the creator and maintainer of ComCode, uh, just <laughs> such an unbelievable resource. No, nothing nothing to laugh about. ComCode is incredible. Um, it's like the in the top two or three things that I recommend to every new data scientist, the way that you break down really complex things into a nice calm and logical and rational way is, uh, it's, it's extremely valuable. Um, so can Happy you talk a little bit about, about, <laughs> about com code and uh, yeah, Why'd you start it? And well, what what is it? I guess give everyone a breakdown. Sure. First. So, so first of all, happy to hear it that you like Calm Code. I'm happy to hear that it helps. Um, so basically, the story behind Calm Code was at some point I was looking at like educational content around data science, and you know, I was an educator. I, I taught some of these courses, and I just started noticing there's just so much gunk. <laughs> Um, so just to give an example, like the number one tutorial, like I guess like four to five years ago, like the number one tutorial on how scikit-learn works, what happened with this data set called Load Boston, uh, which is about Boston house prices. And, you yeah. know, there's so many tutorials use that data set from like all the O'Reilly books to a lot of open source packages. But then you look at the data set and it turns out that one of the variables that they're using to predict a house price is like uh, skin color. Like there's, there's this... Uh, uh, I, I forgot, like, the exact name, but it was, like, something-something percentage of blacks in the town. Like, something kind of horrible. You don't want to put that in the predictive model. It's a really, really bad idea. Also, why right. is this data set in Scikit-Learn? Why are, why are so many people using it? So that just led to a lot of frustration on my hand. And then I also noticed that, like, uh, there are these enterprise courses that use Load Boston that charge $1,000 a day. And you do look at it and you kind of go, this is a mess. Um, and then I figured, you know, um, if... Uh, if I'm this frustrated, maybe I can get energy out by just putting this stuff out there for free. Um, I knew that I was knowledgeable enough to be able to teach these kinds of topics because I've taught them before. But I've also noticed that a lot of this educational content seems to focus more on the creator and less about like just the getting the idea across. So I figured it would be kind of like a fun little experiment. Like if I were to make a learning platform, how would I do it? And <laughs> that's how Calm Code just got created. The idea is you just have like max five minute videos to explain a single topic. Uh, and the sequence of those can be a little course on pandas or can be a little course on whatever. Um, and also what I like about uh, doing the Calm Code thing is for every single topic, I can say, uh, is this a Calm um like tool? Is it something that makes your day-to-day -day nicer? And if the answer is maybe not, then I just don't teach it, <laughs> uh, which is also one of the reasons why I don't teach Spark, uh, to be honest, because uh, a lot of, because you know, installing it is just such a pain. And um, right. sometimes there's like easier ways of analyzing the data than resorting to like a very big data tool. Um, so it's just a very opinionated learning environment uh, that people seem to have really liked. I've gotten lots of very nice responses. Um, ever since the baby showed up, I have been doing way less. Uh, but it has been like very cool to see that just just a little hobby project of mine without distractions that's very calm um, seems to be uh, getting between ten and twenty thousand people a month. Um, and you know, I get lots of personal um, people buy me beers at conferences out of the blue. Like that kind of <laughs> stuff is just pretty cool. I would say, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great resource. Yeah, definitely paying it forward, creating um, yeah a place for data scientists to go to learn anything. Random question: Have you ever mm -hmm. found yourself going back to an old com code to refresh yourself on some of the oh, skills? Totally. That yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so like that, that, that's like another reason. Um, so one thing that com code has proven to be quite nicely for me is it's uh, kind of like a snippets library, because <laughs> I I knew the course that I made and I knew that I definitely 
mentioned this in that course, and I kind of need a config file. Where is it? Um, just like today, I was looking at my typer course because I needed like, oh, how do how do options work again? Like copy paste. Um, so it's yeah. also like almost a snippet tool for myself at this point as well. Uh, not the original intent, but it is something that uh, seems to be happening. Um, and it's also like uh, I'm uh, I'm building search for Calm Code now as well, like uh, kind of as a hobby project. And uh, it I'm like contemplating like, hey, maybe the main thing the search feature should do is just find the right snippets, which is kind of like an interesting search problem on its own. Uh, but yeah, totally. Like I, uh, I need a reminder too. There's like 80 courses. I don't have all of them in my head, <laughs> like all of the time. I still watch my own stuff in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's probably just like a, a good resource, a good resource for you that you can consume. And then became also something that you know so many other people can use. I'm trying to think, my first usage of it, I think it was like Quargs Args, which is like one of the first ones on there. Yeah. Um, and that that one, yeah, I revisit it every so often. Yeah, um, nice. Okay. Yeah, I'm thank you. you. The, well, so the, I would yeah. love to do more, but the, the the simple fact of the matter is, like, my life is a little bit different now because of the baby. Um, so, like, yeah. I, I get, and, like, and there's so many ideas I have that I could do with Calm Code. It's just that um, the one thing I also kind of like about the project is I can not spend any effort on it, and the site will just still run. <laughs> Um, right. So that's also kind of the calm design of it. Um, I, I really like having a hobby project where it's impossible to break, and if and even if it breaks, it's like super easy to fix, and it's just a static website, so that makes it super easy. If there were no time constraints or any resource constraints, what what would you do to improve Calm Code? I guess so there's like a couple of courses particularly that I would love to do like one of them is just embeddings I think that there um, there seems to be like a couple of you know there's a little bit of hype around it but also just uh, you can make embeddings do different things and there's reasons why they work um, but uh, they don't solve every problem and just um, uh, you know I, 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 I think I can do a fun course where you start with like letter embeddings and you move on to word embeddings and images and then you also show how they can fail like I think that that could be that would be super cool um sort of bayesian mcmc stuff i think would be nice to have as well just because you, you can make very articulate models which i think is a trick not people are appreciative enough of uh, and then i would love to have like a new section on the site which is all about like demos and benchmarks uh, and that's because i think uh, it's very hard to do a benchmark wrong um like all benchmarks are wrong but some of them can be very insightful uh, and I think just celebrating that a bit more would also just be fun. And there's a couple of examples that I've got lined up, but I've no time to actually produce it. Um, but, but but things like, hey, what can you do to actually make uh, numeric algorithms converge a bit quicker? Like, does standardization really help or not? And like, just and just try, just exploring that a little bit could be just super fun. I think. Um, so like yeah. stuff like that's in my mind. But I mean, there's there's always stuff to make. Um, and like another thing I'm playing with is like, would it be fun to have a collaborator on that project? Maybe I don't know. Um, but uh, of course, um, I've there's no rush, <laughs> so uh, so it's also kind of fine if I don't spend time on it right now. That's also cool. Yeah, awesome. Uh, switching gears a little bit um, into some of your open source work. Uh, I think the first library of yours that I was exposed to was Bulk. Maybe oh, okay. something else before that, but mm -hmm. that one, I, I was using it, I think the back end was Bokeh at the time, yep. which I think, I think, yeah. It still is, it still is. Oh, it still is? Okay. Yep. Um, and then you also have uh, Embedder, Human Learn, What Lies, Doubt Lab. Those, those are the ones that I'm most familiar with. I know there's about another, Two dozen, dozen or three yeah, dozen. Small more. dozen at this point. <laughs> um, when do you decide like this project deserves an open source library? <laughs> I mean, like uh, when you think it's a tool, yeah. So, so you can speak. Yes, yeah, you can speak to it, it. It helps a bit to maybe explain how the open source thing kind of got started. So, my first open source project that I kind of put on PyPI was this thing called Evil. Uh, which was a, just basically like a DSL for evolutionary programming. Uh, I made it with a colleague of mine. It was a very cute idea. Um, and we, I just wanted to have my own little library. So I was like looking for a problem. Uh, and then I just find out that like, oh, if I have like these kind, like, like I have a population object and evolution object, and those two can interact in nice ways. And it's super easy to make genetic algorithms. All right. Uh, cool library. Did a bunch of talks on that. Um, but then at some point, um, I taught myself how to make 
you know, Python packages. And then I was a consultant and I started noticing that at the same, at different clients, I would be writing the same scikit-learn components. So then I kind of figured, you know, I got to have a library with these components that I keep reusing. And that's how scikit-lego came to be. And that's how I familiarized myself with the scikit-learn ecosystem. And then, you know, I started working at Raza. And there, um, you know, we do lots of benchmarks on uh, sentence uh, classification because uh, Raza builds chatbots. And when you're building chatbots, sentence comes in and we need to figure out the intent. Okay, so I wrote a bunch of benchmarking tools because that's what I needed. And some of those can be open sourced. Uh, what Lies was an example of that because um, I wanted to have a library where very quickly I could just have many non-English embeddings and see if they were better. Uh, and then it turned out that um, there's a whole non-English community around Raza who was super interested in that. Uh, so I was able to build some Raza plugins to just support all of these non-English tools. Um, and, you know, then at some point I started maintaining my own libraries. And then I noticed that I need some unit tests for my docs because I'm like, I, I, I don't want my docs to break. Um, so I made a couple of tools to help me do that. Make test docs. That's like one of these tools. I noticed that the right. tests over at Raza were running super slow. So I made a... PyTest Pi Duration Insights thing so I could figure out which tests were slowest. And and you can kind of see how all these things kind of accumulate, but it's always because I'm just scratching another itch. And my preferred way of operating is just to do that in public. And of course, there are tools that I cannot do in public. Um, you know, I work at a company. Some tools are private. That's fine. Um, but most of the time, it's just that I've encountered a problem and I just want to be able to solve it again later with very low effort. And because I've made packages before, it's just super easy to repeat. And that's also how DoubtLab happened. And it's also how Embetter happened. And honestly, also how Bulk happened. Um, it's just that at some point I figured, you know, I need this for my work. It's nice to have around. So let's just package it and go. Uh, build in public. And that works very well for me. That That's the main story there, um, basically. Yeah, very cool. And that's, yeah, it's a great story. It seems like, yeah, building one tool, you build up certain skills. And then it kind of, you can kind of, one thing kind of leads to another. And then... It's not such a big deal when I guess you have like three dozen amazing tools to add that 37th tool. So, yes, but I do want to maybe make one comment because I do think that in general, like if I look at the companies that I've visited, you know, back when I was a consultant, I do think not enough people make their own Python packages. Um, like, for example, imagine that you have like, a I don't know, just a pandas query that has to deal with time series or something that has to like that is working on a very specific database. Okay, then the, the, the function that reads out the data from the database probably can be a function that needs to be reused. And I don't know, maybe you have to add sessions or maybe you have a very specific machine learning model that you want to reuse. Um, and for all of these like utilities, you don't want them to live in a notebook. You just want them to live in a Python package. And I have seen that not enough people make their own internal tools, which I do think is a shame. And I will say that um, you know, I was around a couple of mature colleagues at the time. Like We would write our own Python tools internally. Um, and because we were having that habit, it was also quite easy for me to make one that was just public. Um, so the, like in general, this, this is like advice I might have for like a more general crowd. Um, you can make Python packages more often than you might think. Uh, so like just build one, even if it's like for your own little uh, helper functions in pandas that you like to use. That's a totally legitimate use case. Yeah. To dive into... I guess the one that I've used the most, Bulk. Um, mm -hmm. Can can you talk about Bulk? Um, I guess go through sort of like the pipeline and, and the requirements for it. What's What are the mechanisms at play? Yeah, so I, it might be fun to also explain how that uh, library accidentally happened. So I had a library called okay. Human Learn. And so I had this one library called Human Learn. And the whole thing with Human Learn is that you can say, I mean, there's a couple of really cool features, but just as a human, you can now make scikit-learn models without knowing anything about machine learning. So one thing you can do is turn a Python function into a scikit-learn compatible component. That's kind of useful because you can grit search over the quarks and all that. However, one thing I thought was kind of cool too is like usually you see a plot, right? Of like some blue dots there, some yellow dots there, some red ones there. And if people say, this is what we need machine learning for, and the, the, you know, an algorithm dissects them. But then I figured, you know, you can also just draw a circle around the green dots and the circle around the blue ones and just translate that circle into a scikit-learn model. Um, so that's like a feature of human learn. In human learn, we have bokeh components that can do that from a notebook. And while I was working on that, uh, I was also working on what lies over at Raza for all of these word embeddings. And then at some point, it started dawning on me that when you take these word embeddings and when you pass them through UMAP, you kind of get these clusters. And then I kind of figured, oh, I just kind of want to select them. 
uh, oh, hang on, I've got this tool called Human Learn that just does that. <laughs> so I just, within like an hour, I had that working on a, in, a, in a notebook. And then I showed it to a bunch of colleagues and they all kind of went, this is super useful, Vinny, well done. Uh, so that was a notebook that got shared around a lot. Um, and then, you know, after a while, uh, I, I no longer work at Raza, but then I started working at this company called Explosion. We have a annotation tool. And then I kind of felt like doing the bulk trick again, but I didn't feel like using that in a notebook. So I just turned that into a, a little web app. Uh, that you can run locally and it's like one of the pre-processing steps i like to use uh, like the, the thing you do before you uh, start annotating in prodigy is you just um, take your data you embed it into a 2d plot using umap uh, and then you typically see clusters and you just try to explore that space make a selection and that's it uh, it's a very nice way to do bulk labeling because clusters tend to appear uh, from these embeddings and that that's basically the whole trick um these bulk labeling techniques, they kind of work, but they're not perfect, but they seem pragmatic enough for me to just go ahead and get started within an hour. Uh, and that's kind of the power of it. Um, stuff that used to take me, like, if getting started used to take me six hours, it now takes me only one hour. And it's a trick that only works for getting started, but I get started a lot on a lot of new data sets. So for me, it just totally solves a problem. Um, bulk is also one of these projects where I would love to have more time to, like, uh, fix some of the rough edges, but um, it, it's, but it is like a little hack that totally works, and I love using it. Uh, and there seems to be like a little crowd of people who um, who seem very appreciative of that tool as well, uh, especially because it does uh, yeah. text, but also images. Um, that's like uh, out of the box; it just does that. Very cool. Yeah, I used Bulk when it was in a notebook. Um, <laughs> I know I reached out to you. You were you were very uh, generous with your time trying to help me getting running yeah, it in different the, environments. The, 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 and the first notebook was definitely buggy. That's definitely true. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely remember that. You still got this. Well, I mean, so I made, still got the also, trick done. Yeah, well, the thing also with Backup Raz, I would, I would also make a habit of making these videos. So like Bulk had like a YouTube video attached as well, which is how a lot of people found out about it. Um, and that, I think yeah. there's this one repository that just happens to have that notebook, which is still like, getting GitHub stars these days. Um, but I'd recommend people just use the command line thing now because it's just less distraction and just a bit more stable, I would say. Yeah. And then interestingly for me, like as I was moving a lot of my work outside of notebooks and things like that, I came across Bulk again, and now I'm using more of the web app. I love both of them. Um, they're, they're great tools and yeah, you make a good point. Sometimes lowering the barrier to get started on a problem is just so important because then you start to get the ball rolling, you start to get some thoughts going and you can make some meaningful progress. What I like about it is it, it like you start building some intuition, right? By like exploring the data and you start to think like, oh, okay, these could be some potential categories, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, yeah, a, I think it's definitely a great like tool. A, there's definitely a human in the loop is learning as well aspect of it that I also think is really useful, especially when you just get, when they dump a new data set on you. I mean, yeah, you can start throwing it into an algorithm and that's, you know, whatever, but, um, genuinely like understanding what's in the data set typically is the thing that takes the most time. And I do think it's nice that like as a side effect of bulk, you are at least exposing yourself to these clusters and that on its own seems quite useful. Uh, one of the things I am working on, by the way, is that right now you can do bulk labeling on like sentences and images. I do want to start doing that for phrases as well, for like substrings in text. So right now I can embed the entire sentence, but what I want to move towards is that I'm also able to say, take every noun phrase in that sentence and make a small little point for that. Uh, because that way, uh, if you're interested in doing named entity recognition or something like that, we can also do bulk labeling for you. Um, and, uh, you know, especially things like video games, uh, that might be abbreviations and, um, right. I don't know, Star Wars are two tokens. Uh, it'd be nice if we can turn it into a single phrase. Um, and over at our company, Explosion, we have lots of tricks that totally solve all of this. It's just that I need to have an afternoon to make that work inside of bulk. But that's like stuff that, I, that is on the roadmap. Like, I am definitely interested in solving uh, some of those problems as well. Yeah. Um... So I know I've noticed going through some of your work, a lot of it is focused on creating high quality data sets. Uh, but something before that uh, is actually, you know, understanding the problem. And I watched uh, one of your PyData talks basically about rephrasing the problem. And you gave an incredible metaphor or just an example 
about a problem where someone's looking for beans, beef, and bread. Can, ah, yeah. Can you, can you talk about that one? So um, this was not my tale. Like, I actually met the person who works at the World Food Program doing operations research. Um, and one of the problems that they had was, uh, you know, uh, there are, there's hunger in the world. Uh, and, you know, sometimes a village uh, who with hunger says, you know, we've got we need more beans or we need more chicken or uh, there's demand, so to say, for certain products. And then part of what the World Food Organization tries to do is try to source those foodstuffs um, cheaply. Uh, and then like part of the cost picture here is the logistics of it. So uh, can we get the food on a truck and how expensive is it to get the truck here? And, and sort of just the whole logistics of that stuff. Um, and as this person was saying, they defined the problem the wrong way originally, because when a person says, I need beans, yes, they can say that, but it's not beans that they need, it's nutrients. Uh, and beans, you know, they're, they're high in fiber and high in protein. Okay, but there's other food like lentils that is also high in fiber and high in protein. And if we're fighting hunger, then we're not going to be very picky about whether or not we get beans or lentils. And maybe if we do that, we can get the food stuff without needing a shipyard. We can just send the truck. Um, and just by redefining that problem, I believe they got like a 5% cost reduction, which in which is a crazy high number uh, for operation, for a problem that people have already spent like years on trying to optimize. Getting a 5% cost reduction is, is like almost unheard of, but it was basically right. because they were solving the wrong problem. And um, my theory is, at least, that uh, like this is an anecdote of like a thing that happened to this one person for the World Food Program. But quite typically, this whole act of rephrasing is a very useful exercise that maybe not not enough of us do. Um, like in, uh, in to give an example of like uh, NLP, uh, one of the problems, one of the things I sometimes see on like our support forum is, uh, let's say they have a, a resume that they want to parse. And then they say, well, I want to have the start date and the end date uh, like per job. So I want to have an algorithm that can detect the start date. And, you know, you can build an algorithm that can detect the start date. That's fine. But if you rephrase the problem into let's first find all the dates and then afterwards figure out which one is the start date and the end date, then the second problem becomes, well, the start date's probably first and the end date's probably after that. <laughs> oh, the whole problem just becomes a whole lot simpler if you just rephrase the problem into a two-step approach instead of considering it end-to-end. -end. And there's lots of these opportunities, I think, that people forget about. Uh, and I, again, to come back to calm code, I fear that partially um, some of the machine learning tech books, uh, textbooks are to blame because very few machine learning books actually tell you that you can choose to ignore half the data if it makes more sense. You can choose to just solve a different problem if that's easier to solve. But that's like not a, a mode of thinking I, I seem to see, especially with new graduates, uh, which is a bit of a shame. But, um, but that World Food Program story, um, I have to trust the person on stage who told it to me but that definitely happened like the world food program found a way uh, to reduce uh cost of transportation by five percent just by rephrasing a mathematical problem that's definitely something that happens uh, right in, in real life yeah and i i mean doing something at that scale any sort of reduction a five percent reduction is is math like that would be massive uh my my, my favorite quote from that presentation, you said it, it wasn't the algorithm that saved the day, rather an understanding of the world. A better algorithm yeah. would yield a worse outcome if it is used on the wrong problem. Yeah, really yeah, like that one. Oh, happy to hear it. No, so the um, th th there's more anecdotes in that story, but if one if people are interested in this, by the way, um, there is a operations researcher called uh, I believe John Akoff. Um, and he wrote this one paper about like, I think the title was the future of operations research is past, which he wrote in like the eighties, <laughs> uh, but he basically just outlines <laughs> like why operations research algorithms can fail. And it's like related, like reasons related to this anecdote. The reason why I want to bring this up is because some of those arguments work for data science too. <laughs> it's an article <laughs> from the eighties, but it's like, everyone should read it. Uh, the, uh, yeah, the future of operations research is past. And I, I wrote a similar article called the future of data science is past just by, you know, repeating a couple of those arguments, but people often forget that the algorithm is usually just a cog in the system. And we're interested in building a better system, not a better cog. Uh, so if you're building a better cog, but it doesn't fit the rest, it's not a better cog because you don't get a better system. Um, another thing that Akoff does very well in his books, he basically explains a lot of these like systems theories things. Uh, and one, one quote there that I can recommend people think more about is maybe instead of making, let's say, a better cog, um, instead of thinking like, hey, maybe there's like one part of the system that we can optimize, 
Maybe instead, try to see if you can make the communication between two parts better. <laughs> um, because that's, yeah. like, if you think about it from a systems perspective, uh, by doing that, you're optimizing two things. Uh, and also, you're gaining clarity. So that's always good. Um, and it's definitely this sort of, let's think about a problem by reducing it down to a single number and not consider anything else. Like, that's usually, like, a rabbit hole where people lose themselves in as well in data science, I think. Um, yeah. That's it's super interesting because I think that there are a lot of times when people approach problems, sometimes they focus on sort of the different modules and they have this modular way of thinking about things and they go, oh, if I make this one thing the best that it could be, then, you know, the, the whole system will be better. And in some cases it will make, yeah, you know, yeah. a great improvement. But other times it's very important that the supporting system, how does it, inter like, how does it integrate? It reminds me of like... You have to have good integration tests <laughs> and you need to make sure that uh, everything fits into the system properly. I think so. There was this, uh, like to give an, like a, an anecdote here, like um, I remember, uh, so the former CEO of Bull.com wrote this in his autobiography. So Bull.com is like the Dutch Amazon. Uh, it's Amazon's not that big here. Bull.com is basically Amazon, oh, but blue and Dutch. That's kind of the thing we have. <laughs> but they hired their first data scientist at some point. And this book has like a chapter on that. Like, what did the first data scientist, what happened when we got our first data scientist? Um, and, and, you know, in the book, he, the, the first data scientist portrayed as kind of an arrogant kind of a person um, who was always complaining, like, all oh, these humans, they're not as good as my algorithm. Uh, and then, like, one of the things that he does is he figures out that there's an optimal time to tweet about new video games that come out on their social channels, and etc. So that's, like, a thing he did. Um, <clears throat> in Holland, we have this thing called Remembrance Day. Uh, and I, uh, I believe it's 7 o'clock, could be 8, but during Remembrance Day, we remember the Second World War, and basically the entire country goes for a two-minute silence. You might have seen some of the photos where, like, like people on their bikes delivering pizzas would, you know, step off the bike, just stand still for two minutes. It's a thing that people take quite serious. So, 7 o'clock on Remembrance Day will be a very bad time to tweet about the new Call of Duty shooting game where you can shoot a bunch of people. And uh, it will be especially bad if you would tweet that you're super excited about the prospect of shooting people during Remembrance Day. But that's exactly right. what happened because his algorithm determined that 7 o'clock was the optimal time to start tweeting about this sort of thing. <laughs> and, and, and there's so many of these stories, right? Uh, and like on their own, on paper, I cannot necessarily blame the data scientist for doing um, you know, his or her work. But, uh, but, but this is like the systems thing. Uh, they're like the, the group one is ha, has a concern that something might go wrong. Group two does not. <laughs> if you just get them talking to each other, then usually uh, the world's a better place. That's the yeah a, a theme, I would say. Yeah, that's the old uh, you know when you get the answer to your problem and you have to say like, does this make sense? <laughs> you know, yes. I, I think that yeah. that's some <laughs> that's sometimes a little step that a lot of people skip over, and it's it's extremely important. I mean, I don't want. I do want to maybe acknowledge. It's also hard, right? I mean, oh, yeah. uh, I think uh, fit, calling dot fit dot predict the easy bit. It's all the stuff around that that's like way trickier, uh, especially when you consider themes of fairness, like uh, like all like all the things that can go wrong. Like, can we really? Uh, can we really know it up front? I, I I don't know if you always can. Um, to give a one to give one shout out though, um, there is this project. I think it's called uh, Dion, if I'm not mistaken, the Dion checklist. Um, there is a Calm Code course. Yeah, it's called Dion, uh, but Dion is a data science checklist. Um, so just a bunch of stuff that has gone wrong uh, at different companies where. Uh, there's newspaper articles like explaining how bad the situation became. Uh, they just have a checklist of stuff that like, hey, check for this before you push live because stuff might go wrong. And for every item on that checklist, um, they also have like two newspaper articles of like stuff that happened in the past. So you, as the data scientist, can go up to your boss and say, um, I want to de-risk this because this actually went wrong. <laughs> um, right. And it's a very, it's a really cool project just because they actually did like the proper. Um, uh, you know, collecting of anecdotes, which I think is a powerful um, act uh, in this day and age. Yeah, 100%. Having a story connected to anything in, uh, you know, data science is, yeah, always valuable. To, to zoom out and just, I guess, to talk about machine learning in general, it's a question I like to ask. Uh, what's an important question that you believe remains unanswered in machine learning? I mean, okay, so 
I was okay. So I was drinking at a uh, Pi Data after party, uh, and some you know a couple of people, a couple of people came up to me, and these were people I would consider relatively senior. Like they they knew their stuff, and uh, and they asked me to predict the future of machine learning. <clears throat> And I, I kind of felt like making a joke because you know you're you're at the bar. You're not. I wasn't really inclined to go super into that. But then I. But I, as a joke, I figured I would say, you know what? I think it's, I think the future of data science. People are going to really realize just the amount, sheer amount of nonsense that's in our field, and we should maybe just stop altogether. Um, but then I started thinking about it more, and I will say um, there is some truth in that. Actually, I, I do kind of worry that. Um, maybe a lot of the stuff that we're doing is more like, oh, can we, you know, do the hype thing instead of, are we sure that we understand the problem? Um, <clears throat> so, you know, what's missing in machine learning? Well, maybe we're doing too much of it. It's kind of also like a feeling that I have. And of course, there's a place in machine learning in the future. Like, it's, it's definitely going to happen. But it doesn't have to be everything. Like, that's kind of more the thing that I'm afraid of. Um, uh, uh, I forget the author, which I'm a bit bummed out about now but there's a an author who writes a book about artificial weirdness just like all the weird gunk that artificial intelligence can produce and the book like the book is called you look like a thing and i love you and that's because she trained <laughs> the author um i, I should really look uh, you look like a thing and i love you by janelle shane uh, but like, have, have a read. Um, the book starts by saying, I have all of these twin, uh, Tinder texts, and I want to have an algorithm figure out the best Tinder text uh, to send. And the algorithm came with, you look like a thing and I love you. Which is kind of a, <laughs> you know, a hilariously brilliant thing, but it's not the thing you should send, uh, I think, on Tinder. Uh, but the book is full of these examples where you kind of have to be careful that artificial stupidity is not sort of happening at the same time as well, right? Uh, there's right. plenty of examples where that happens. Like the Call of Duty thing is just one example. So <clears throat> I don't know. Like I'm a little bit. Um, I find myself to be kind of the grumpy old guy, sort of <laughs> yells at clouds, kind of a like you know. Sure, machine learning has a place, but can we do without it first? Like I, I first try the simple thing, because uh, that's something that people seem to forget uh, seem to forget to do, and that's like I think a more pressing uh, concern, uh, personally. In yeah, in a similar vein. Um with the, you know, everything that's going on in natural language processing right now with generative models and, and chat GPT, how do you view the gap between the hype and the reality? I'm excited to get the old grumpy guy's uh, perspective so, on this. Um, so, I was, so I am actually professionally toying with this stuff. So, um, and you can actually, so um, if, you, if you have a look, uh, the Explosion uh, repository now, uh, uh, openai dash prodigy recipes i think yeah that's the name of the, the repository um so we are experimenting a little bit with like hey can Ch chat dpg3 uh, just say here's a sentence uh detect all the dates just so we can like pre-highlight that in our uh, prodigy interface it's like something we are exploring right now and it turns out it's actually really good at some some of these examples and it's really bad at others we don't fully understand yeah. why yet but I will acknowledge here, like, hey, that can be quite useful. Um, you know, just uh, if, if that's something that you can use to get better training data quicker because the annotation is just a lot easier, uh, you know, just saying yes or no is quicker than sort of highlighting every single item in the, in the user interface. That seems totally fine. Uh, what I think is a bit more of a concern, though, is that people sort of say, ah, it's magic. That's how this works. It's magic. <laughs> like, it's not magic. It's uh, like it, it's kind of like, uh, it, you know, to some extent, it's kind of like the Markov chain thing where it just predicts the next word. And I can, you can kind of imagine that if you just do, give that enough text and enough compute power, uh, you might be able to sort of have it generate very plausible text that you might find on the Internet. Then you can ask questions like, is this generalizing or is it just remembering? And, you know, those are all fair questions. But it's not intelligence just yet. It's not real reasoning. And I have plenty of silly examples <laughs> that demonstrate that it's not actual intelligence that's what's happening under the hood. That said, um, right. again, as long as there's a human in a loop and it proves to be useful and productive, then I think it's fine. Um, and, but again, that's when I'm wearing the lens of, hey, there are professional interests. Um, there are, of course, also like harmful vectors that I do think need to be taken into consideration as well. You know, you can definitely send more mass emails in bulk and maybe have more Twitter bots and all, like, all of those things that I'm not particularly fond of. Um, right. So anyway, like that's, that's one aspect. Uh, like another thing I do also maybe want to 
uh, like highlight because I also tried the mid journey thing. Like I've um, I tried to generate Magic okay, the Gathering yeah. cards. Um, so I thought like I've, okay, I've seen they're pretty funny. <laughs> so the, I I thought at some point it would be kind of funny to say like hey let's make Magic the Gathering cards of orcs in the office. Like you would have like uh, an orc warlord product manager and like an orc venture capitalist and like an orc Ted keynote speaker and you know like immediately this idea is pretty funny because. If you think about the office, you th- kind of think like a dull gray suit. And if you think of an orc, you think like World of Warcraft, epic warmonger, etc. And, and so, you know, that was, that was pretty funny. But then the next question is, can we actually generate the really funny pictures? And that turned out to be somewhat hard. So I have this one picture of like an orc paladin, like totally covered in iron, basically, like mass, like behind the computer. And you do kind of go like, okay, like data engineer, kind of, a, okay, that's, that's kind of funny already. But I wanted this orc to be a data analytics engineer because they are talking about data lakes. And then I thought the funny thing would be heavy ironclad orc, but like little yellow snorkel comes out of like the helmet. <laughs> like that would just be the funniest thing. And I, for the life of me, I could not get it to generate a yellow snorkel. And, and you start thinking about like, why might that be? And then you also think like, well, Vincent, you're already kind of stretching it to have like these World of Warcraft Dungeons and Dragons styles in an office. Like the fact that those right. two styles are even compatible is already kind of a stretch, let alone that you also generate some sort of weird snorkel from it, right? <laughs> so, so if people consider these tools like magic, um, the best advice that I do have is try to come up with like a, a kind of an awkward, weird task that tries to touch where the edges are of where such algorithms are comfortable and that's usually going to give you examples that can maybe help you consider that it's not really magic what's happening there's just this it's trying to remember it's trying to sort of uh, generate stuff that it's seen before um and there's plenty of edge case examples where this sort of stuff is just uh, you look like a thing and I love you. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, read that right. book. It has really compelling examples, and the the style of the book is lovely too. I can highly recommend it. Thank you. Yeah, I'll I will check it out. Yeah, I think generative models are super interesting because unlike predictive models, you know, where you're doing like text categorization, where you can, I mean, you can sort of know your best if it's correct or not. There is like a ground truth with generative models where you're doing something like you want to create an orc that's wearing a snorkel, you know, how do you know that it's, it's correct, right? Like it's, it's not like, it's not so clear cut. <laughs> how many um, labels of unrelated photos do you need to actually generate that? Right? <laughs> oh, but, but also here is why I, yeah. I also like the thing, like part of the solution here is obviously like user interface as well. Like I think having text as an yes. input is, you know, there's, there's, there's amazing things you can do with that. But in this case, you also, okay, we're almost there. I just want to select the region around the helmet where a yellow snorkel needs to appear like like the, the, something like that is going to happen at some point uh, and that's going to make these systems better and then uh, I, I can move on to enterprise elves and figure out some other edge case right um, and that will kind of be a continuous thing um, but but yeah like like I will say like in general like because um, you, you mentioned ground truth right ground truth is tricky too uh, and this is also yeah. where a lot of artificial stupidity kind of comes from. And, like, my personal uh, gripe with that, I mean, so to consider, like, image classification, like the famous cat-dog thing. Like, is this a picture of a dog or is this a picture of a cat? Standard classification would say, okay, there's this is a binary, cla- a binary task. But then you kind of go, well, well, we can have photos with no cats or dogs. So, okay, we need three classes. Okay, what do you do with photos that have both a cat and a dog? Oh, yeah, okay, that can happen too, right. Okay, okay, reality's more complex. Okay, what do we do then? Okay, well, maybe we have to say, is there a dog in the photo? Yes, no. And is there a cat in the photo? Yes, no. Maybe those should just be two binary classifications. Maybe that'd be more sensible. Okay, what do you do when there's four dogs in the photo? (laughs) Like, (laughs) and and again, like, the more and more you start thinking about it, you also kind of realize, like, like even the well-defined text classification thing doesn't always mix well with reality either. And even if you have ground truth labels, you kind of got to wonder, well, the ground truth labels maybe don't mix with reality either if it's defined as a classification task because a top, like, a sentence can be about more than one topic and the photo can be about more than one thing as well. So, uh, again, like, taking a step back and just really wondering, well, some of, the, some of these things can be details as long as we understand the problem, but maybe we should focus on that then. Um, 
yeah, maybe it doesn't. I, yeah, so maybe it doesn't. We, maybe we should skip hyperparameter tuning <laughs> and only worry about like, <laughs> do we really understand the problem? Yeah. Uh, tech, tip yeah. That's yeah. That's a really good point. I think that you know when you're approaching a problem, you jump to a solution. You know, if you're doing something like text classification, oh okay, I'm going to create a multi-class text classifier. Well. You it turns out that it's never really quite that simple, right? It's really multi-label. Should I use a hierarchy? Should I do this? Should I do that? And, you know, getting a better understanding of the problem always, you know, helps you figure out so much, so much more valuable than doing hyperparameter tuning on that original multi-class text classifier. To, yeah, and, to, and again, to zoom uh, out, oh yeah. Well, and like if, if people no, you feel continue, like, continue. well, so the main thing I, I do have like a little bit of advice. Like the, the mm -hmm. like the general, I'm on the Prodigy forum and I help some spacey users with their problems. The most general advice that I do give people in this domain is consider that maybe um, the model can do one step, but your system can do two or three if need be. So uh, definitely feel free to consider the two-step system where we have a couple of classifiers that detect a couple of properties, and then we have a rule-based system after that's going to say, oh, okay, this combination of things, that seems interesting, let's go for that. Um, like, and, like people forget about the rule-based system that can be built on top of, uh, and that's uh, you know a bit of a miss. Uh, but it's also like 80% of the time, that's also the fix. So... Um, do with this information yeah. what you will, dear audience, but I do think that there's a two-step <laughs> approach definitely does work in general. I think that's that's really good advice, especially right now with all of the hype with deep learning. I think we're still in a world where, you know, finding the right combination between machine learning models and heuristics sometimes, like, you know, pretty basic heuristics often yields the best results. Um. Mm -hmm. To, to move into the learning from machine learning portion of, uh, of our talk, we'll start with this. Uh, who are some people in the machine learning field that influence you? I mean, uh, I've had some really lovely direct colleagues um, <laughs> that I still hang out with. So uh, those, obviously. Um, and then I guess like... Um, back when I started, I was learning R, so Hadley Wickham was a person I definitely looked up to a lot, and I also met him uh, on a couple of occasions, which is super cool. Like I was, his, well, he did, he did an advanced R cores like five years ago, and I was his TA. It was like great, great experience. Got to meet the guy. Um, I I'm so Catherine Jarmel is a person also kind of comes to mind. She was one of the kickstarters behind Pi Ladies, but she also has been like a great advocate for privacy and sort of fairness in machine learning and stuff. And um, she has reviewed my slides in the past for a couple of talks, and she's just great. Uh, she comes to mind. Vicky Boykis, I think, is like one of the funniest people that can't get. Like, she deserves way more credit, but for shit posting. But uh, she's great. <laughs> um, like the NormConf thing was also like an amazing thing that she helped kickstart there. Like that was great. Um, and then um, Brett Victor, I think, has the best uh, talk I've ever seen in my that I, that I will ever see. Uh, the Future of Programming by Brett Victor. That's like a thing I watch every year, basically. That's the most, like, the gobsmack most inspirational thing I've ever seen. Um, I, I won't tell you what the thing is about. Just watch it. <laughs> I'm uh, looking and, forward to it. And then, I guess, John Ackoff. But the main thing with John Ackoff was, like, I, I, I did this whole master's degree in uh, operations research. And then, like, a professor was going to retire. And I was, like, one of the speakers at his party. Uh, and then at some point he goes, the reason I wanted you here is because you really remind me of John Ackoff. Like, who is he? Like, who is this amazing guy? He just buy his book. And then you read his stuff and he's like, Jesus Christ, he's like me in the 80s. <laughs> um, so like, that, that was definitely also like a good source of inspiration. But to be honest, um, like one thing I do want to maybe mention about this is like, um, back when I was organizing a Pi Data, right? Like you kind of think like, okay, who are good keynote speakers and who are good like invited speakers, etc. And my impression is that uh, there's like the average Joe is pretty inspirational, but the average Joe doesn't like think that he or she should be on stage. And the best example of this is um, at Pi Data London, there was a normal talk by a guy who was building drones to find endangered species of orangutan in the rainforests of Borneo. 
And he had wow. small and he had the small room, but his talk was amazing. So I figured, screw this, you're the keynote at Amsterdam. Like this is, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. This is your hobby. <laughs> um, so he was the keynote speaker the next year. Um and, and, wow. and he was, you know, grateful and we had good fun, but like he didn't realize that that was like definite keynote material. Uh, and similarly, I I read this blog post once where this this guy was trying to figure out which words are the most metal? And the way he did that was by training a, a huge Markov chain uh, on uh, metal lyrics and non-metal lyrics. Um, and the conclusion of the blog post was the, the least metal word is cooperation because it only appears in the corpus <laughs> once. And, and, and you read this and you do kind of go like, this is amazing because you're basically, you know, you're, you're applying the theory correctly on a pretty, you know, humorously silly problem, maybe, but yeah. there's passion here. Uh, and the, the guy, when I, when I did approach him, like, you really need to apply for PyData. Like, I would love to, like, <laughs> I don't have to review your thing. Like, I think you're going to be in. Um, and it just hadn't occurred to him that this was something he could do. And I like to think that there are so many more people who suffer from this, uh, that they might have, like, a really grand, amazing, inspirational moment, uh, but don't consider that they're able to share that. And, of course, some people are, like, properly introverts, which is also just fine. Um, but one thing I, one lesson I have learned uh, at PyData is that the inspiration can really come from surprising angles that you don't expect. So uh, don't focus too much on the big names. That's also a thing. Yeah. Those are the best, well, not the best, one of the best types of people that are very humble and, you know, they do such a good job with their work and just you can tell how much they care about what they do and how much, I don't know if pride's the right word, but they they take they care. their work very seriously. So yeah, like, they care. They, they care. Yeah. That, yeah. So the, and there's definitely like... Um, you can be the smartest person, but if you don't care about your topic, it's not going to be a great talk. And and, and let's say that um, it, maybe you've cut a few corners, but you you calculated the optimal Pokemon. <laughs> I don't know, like something like that. Uh, it can still be a great talk. Uh, and, and again, more people should do it. If people are interested in doing more blogs and talks, by the way, um, consider lightning talks and very short blog posts called Today I Learned. Um, the world definitely needs more of that. Uh, and I'm happy to see uh, Pi to Amsterdam, the meetup, once a year, they kind of do like the lightning talk meetup, where just uh, I think like ten people give a five minute presentation. Uh, those meetups tend to be amazing. Uh, more uh, to any PyData organizers listening, uh, feel free to steal this idea. Uh, those meetups are always fun. Very cool. So you've, you've given a lot of advice so far, but I want to ask, what's one piece of advice or something that stuck out um, that you've received? Uh, that's helped you in in your machine learning or career journey. Um, hmm. I mean, I, this actually, I got very early on in my career. The for, my former CTO that I still hang out with uh, gave me pretty good career advice when I was 22, 23. and he basically said, "Well, be careful of getting a raise." Um, because if if you if if your job starts earning a lot of money, but it's kind of getting boring then the money might be a reason that you're going to stick around. And that's a dangerous thing early in your career. Um, because, you know, you, especially early in your career, maybe you got to figure out what you like in life. And maybe you got to figure out what makes you tick. And if you're going to hyper-focus on the money, it's kind of like hyper-focusing on a metric. Um, you're going you're gonna to over-optimize for something that might not matter as much. Um, so that was, like, pretty cool advice, I would say. Kind of on the meta side. But I do think, in general... Um, I have been able to sort of apply that quite well. Uh, and again, privilege speaking here, right? But like, I have been able to apply that, so that's been that's been cool. Um, and I don't know, like um, the, the the main, th I, I guess the main thing I, yeah, I guess that that's been kind of a weird anecdote, but surprisingly inspirational as well. Um, so some of, I have a lot of friends who do nothing in data science. And I love that. <laughs> I'm nerdy Vincent, and when I drink beer with them, they say, stop being nerdy Vincent. You're amongst normal people again. Like, you can, you can just talk about, like, life now. Uh, and one of these, like, buddies of mine, uh, like, I live in a, in a neighborhood where, like, you know all of your neighbors, basically. Uh, and it's, like, the it's sort of a, still kind of a middle-classy neighborhood thing. Like, it's changing because gentrification, but, like, you know, we all know each other. So there's a guy in my street, uh, and uh, he's a painter. And when it's nice weather, he puts a crate of beer on his bench outside of his house. And the whole street just sort of goes for a pint, basically. It's, it's the cutest thing. Cutest neighborhood ever. 
Uh, but the thing with him is he recently became an independent contractor as a painter, which also meant that he bought his first laptop ever. And he's 42. Um, and, like, he needs help, not just with his website, but, like, getting Word started. Like, his entire life, the, the, the main computer that he had was his phone, and he was been, he, he's been fine. But he finds the computer terribly, terribly complex. And to be honest, I find that just such a refreshing thing. <laughs> um, to also be reminded of the fact that, like, the way that I experience computers doesn't necessarily have to be normal. Like, that's, like, a very useful reminder, <laughs> I think. Um, so, like, the, the best inspiration in that sense, like, just maybe don't be a machine learning all the time, is my advice. Hmm. Uh, also because, you know, especially if you're, you're making machine learning for apps that the average person uses, so to say, uh, it really helps to remember that they really don't care about your algorithm. They just don't. <laughs> like, they really, really don't. Um, right. And I don't know. Like, uh, you can be I, – I have found myself to be stuck in a machine learning bubble at times, and I just find it very refreshing to sort of – I used to do this at like consultancy gigs as well. Like at some point I was making an app that the truckers would have to use, like logistics stuff. And at some point I would just hang out at the smokers corner where all the truckers would hang out <laughs> just to sort of understand what kind of people they were. Uh, and also just to, to, right. to understand what they found frustrating about the app and that kind of like uh, doing more of that really, like being more of a human in the loop and fo like focus on the human thing is I guess what I'm trying to do more of and what I find very inspirational, I suppose. Yeah, I really like that. Um, one more advice question. Um, mm -hmm. For somebody who is just starting out in the field, let's say that they just got hired as a junior data scientist, or they're thinking about starting in data science, what would, what would your advice be to them? Um, okay, so step one, I gave a talk on this topic at NormConf. Uh, so there's a talk titled Group by awesome. Statements That Save the Day. Um, this talk is precisely designed for you. Um, having said that, um, I mean, I'm I'm a really bad person to give career advice because I, looking back, I just thought that a large chunk of where I am today is due to luck, and that's something that's kind of hard to optimize for. What I do think is, in general, perhaps useful is maybe have your own blog, where you just share things that you learned today. Uh, so just like Calm Code is still kind of my snippets library in a way, practically. Your blog can be the same for you. And um, in general, I have found that um, these Today I Learned snippets, if you're able to write two a month, let's say, and they take maybe half an hour per thing instead of like a big blog post that takes hours, this thing shouldn't take more than like tens of minutes, let's say. But you do it for a year and you've got a blog with 24 posts. And uh, if you're learning and, uh, you know, you're able to share knowledge that way, people are going to sort of acknowledge that, uh, like, you do have a bit of a resume there that can demonstrate that you're learning stuff. So that seems like a, a pretty easy thing to do if you want to get something of an online presence with low effort. So that's something I recommend. Um, yeah, and I guess, like, the other advice is I do think it's a bit of a shame now that, you know, the hiring market and all that, if you are, like, a super junior just getting started, I do want to acknowledge it's kind of hard. But one thing that you can do to make it maybe slightly easier for yourself is to consider that you don't have to know everything in order to get the job. You might also be able to get a related job. So some advice that I have given in friends of mine who wanted to sort of get into this data science field is I advise them, well, it's a little bit easier maybe to learn R than it is to learn Python. And it's maybe a little bit easier to just be an analyst for a year or two. And all the skills you learn while being an analyst are going to be super useful if you want to become a data science person later. So if it's easier and you get paid to learn, don't optimize for a title. Just optimize for like the stuff that you learn while on the job. That it seems easier. And there's nothing wrong with being a good analyst. Maybe we need more good analysts than we do good data scientists as well, right? Um, maybe we need more group by statements right. that save the day. Hint, watch, watch the talk. <laughs> Um, but, I, but I do think like there's a little bit of snobbery when it comes to like job titles like oh I'm the super senior staff mega engineer like sure but if, if you're just a really decent analyst uh, the, we, we need more very decent analysts that's also fine like, go for that yeah that's, that's definitely good advice and now the question that we've all been waiting for um, what has a career in machine learning taught you about life uh, some problems solve themselves when you ignore them. <laughs> uh, like, like, like seriously, like I, I've been in so many of these situations where the problem got solved by just ignoring the machine learning bit <laughs> that you kind of start to wonder, well, maybe some problems just solve themselves if you ignore them. Uh, and I have noticed in a few instances, this is just kind of the case. 
like, um, especially when you have a child, like, uh, you do kind of learn that, like, there's some stuff that you can uh, over-optimize for as well. And, like, oh, the baby's not sleeping well. Well, that problem will sort itself out at some point. It's not really, it's not necessarily, it's not like influence from my end is going to make, like, a very significant impact there. Um, and I guess the same thing with machine learning. Like, um, there, there's some stuff that you can control, some stuff that you can't. Just make sure that you understand what you can and cannot control and then move on from there. Um and again, like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a mixed bag when it comes to the whole machine learning thing. I'm, part of my opinion is it's a super useful tool, and like uh, we need more good people doing machine learning. But at the same time, it's like a, a gross bucket of hype <laughs> that we really want to have less of. And yeah. my day-to-day -day sort of job is to sort of deal with both of these feelings. Um, yeah, I hope this answered the question in some way. But uh, that, that's kind no, that's of one. where I'm at. That's kind of where I'm at. Um, yeah, some and, problems, and, 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 and also yeah. like try try to do it calmly, I guess. To, to, to make the <laughs> final pun uh, is also something I might recommend. There you go. Um, yeah, I think that some problems over time do do resolve themselves, and also I like uh, like the first rule of machine learning is: Do you really need to use machine? Do you really need to use machine mm. learning? Yeah, it has no, been. A... Uh, yeah, no, so I yeah the. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, and one thing I really appreciate, like, to maybe brag about the employer a bit, one thing I really like about Spacey is you don't have to use the machine learning bits. You can also just use the non-machine learning bits in Spacey, and they are also performant, fast, and super useful. Um, like, uh, there are also machine learning packages that allow you to do some rule-based stuff. And if you're doing NLP, like, this is really why I love using Spacey. Um, it, you don't have to use the statistical stuff all the time. Uh, the rule-based engines are great, too. Um end of pitch yeah i've <laughs> i've been a huge fan of spacey I'm trying to think for how long for a while now at least three years probably more um it's helped me solve lots lots of problems from named entity recognition uh text classification cool ways of doing matching you know all, all of that for me it has the... been uh oh yes well so if i can give one final pitch um so there's a lot of talk about data-centric AI these days. Um, but the reason yeah. why I started like getting interested in what these explosion people were doing back in the day is there's a blog post from 2017 called Supervised Learning is Great, It's Data Collection That's Broken. Um, hmm. They were doing data-centric stuff in 2017, but that's one of the best blog posts I've ever read. Um, so they talk about data quality, and like one of the best quotes ever is, don't expect great data if you're boring the shit out of underpaid people because mechanical turk is still like the way people go sometimes uh read that blog post i will give you a link for the show notes like that's also like a highly inspirational thing people should read awesome and thank you so much <laughs> it has it has been uh such a pleasure to talk with you um you've given me tons of great resources uh putting together the show notes for this one uh is definitely going to be a good time uh if there are some places that you would want listeners maybe to uh, learn more about you what, what would those places be um so i'm on twitter and fostadon these days um but like uh, the main the main thing i so i cannot announce anything just yet it's just that i work at explosion and i can see the stuff that's in the pipeline um so i'm working on very cool stuff and uh, uh there's definitely going to be announcements of like super cool stuff all of my other colleagues are working on uh just follow explosion there's a bunch of really cool stuff in the pipeline is the main thing i'll say and if you do that then you also uh, at some point we'll hear about some of the stuff that i'm working on Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Vincent. It has truly been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you for listening to Learning from Machine Learning. This episode was packed with gems from Vincent Warmerdam, the creator of ComCode and currently a machine learning engineer at Explosion, the company behind Spacey. Be sure to check out the show notes to learn more about this podcast and some of the topics discussed. Talk soon, and keep on learning.